This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker. It's read by Robert White. It comes to us from LibriVox. It runs 30 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker Recording by Robert White When we started for our drive, the sun was shining brightly on Munich, and the air was full of the joyousness of early summer. Just as we were about to depart, Herr Delbruck, the maître d'hôtel of the Quatre Saisons, where I was staying, came down, bareheaded, to the carriage, and after wishing me a pleasant drive, said to the coachman, still holding his hand on the handle of the carriage door, "'Remember, you are back by nightfall. The sky looks bright, but there is a shiver in the north wind that says there may be a sudden storm. But I am sure you will not be late.' Here he smiled and added, "'For you know what night it is.' Johann answered with an emphatic, "'Ja, mein Herr,' and touching his hat, drove off quickly, when we had cleared the town, I said, after signalling to him to stop, "'Tell me, Johann, what is to-night?' He crossed himself as he answered laconically, "'Walpurgisnacht.' Then he took out his watch, a great, old-fashioned German silver thing, as big as a turnip, and looked at it, with his eyebrows gathered together and a little impatient shrug of his shoulders. I realised that this was his way of respectfully protesting against the unnecessary delay, and sank back in the carriage, merely motioning him to proceed. He started off rapidly, as if to make up for lost time. Every now and then the horses seemed to throw up their heads and sniff the air suspiciously. On such occasions I often looked round in alarm. The road was pretty bleak, for we were traversing a sort of high, wind-swept plateau. As we drove, I saw a road that looked but little used, and which seemed to dip through a little winding valley. It looked so inviting that even at the risk of offending him, I called Johann to stop, and when he had pulled up, I told him I would like to drive down that road. He made all sorts of excuses, and frequently crossed himself as he spoke. This somewhat piqued my curiosity, so I asked him various questions. He answered fencingly, and repeated, looking at his watch in protest. Finally I said, "'Well, Johann, I want to go down this road. I shall not ask you to come unless you like. But tell me why you do not like to go. That is all I ask.' For answer he seemed to throw himself off the box, so quickly did he reach the ground. Then he stretched out his hands appealingly to me, and implored me not to go. There was just enough of English mixed with the German for me to understand the drift of his talk. He seemed always just about to tell me something.' the very idea of which evidently frightened him, but each time he pulled himself up, saying, as he crossed himself, Walpurgisnacht. I tried to argue with him, but it was difficult to argue with a man when I did not know his language. The advantage certainly rested with him, for although he began to speak in English of a very crude and broken kind, he always got excited and broke into his native tongue and every time he did so he looked at his watch. 
Then the horses became restless and sniffed the air. At this he grew very pale, and looking around in a frightened way, he suddenly jumped forward, took them by the bridles, and led them on some twenty feet. I followed and asked why he had done this. For answer he crossed himself and pointed to the spot we had left, and drew his carriage in the direction of the other road, indicating a cross, and said, first in German, then in English, buried him, him what killed themselves. I remembered the old custom of burying suicides at the crossroads. Ah, I see, a suicide. How interesting. But for the life of me, I could not make out why the horses were frightened. Whilst we were talking, we heard a sort of sound between a yelp and a bark. It was far away, but the horses got very restless, and it took Johann all his time to quiet them. He was pale, and said, It sounds like a wolf, but yet there are no wolves here now. No? I said, questioning him. Isn't it long since the wolves were so near the city? Long, long, he answered. In the spring and summer, but with the snow the wolves have been here not so long. While he was petting the horses and trying to quiet them, the dark clouds drifted rapidly across the sky. The sunshine passed away, and a breath of cold wind seemed to drift past us. It was only a breath, however, and more in the nature of a warning than a fact, for the sun came out brightly again. Johann looked under his lifted hand at the horizon and said, The storm of snow, he comes before long time. Then he looked at his watch again, and, straight away holding his reins firmly, for the horses were still pawing the ground restlessly and shaking their heads, he climbed to his box, as though the time had come for proceeding on our journey. I felt a little obstinate and did not at once get into the carriage. Tell me, I said, about this place where the road leads, and I pointed down. Again he crossed himself and mumbled a prayer before he answered, It is unholy. What is unholy, I inquired. The village. Then there is a village. No, no, no one lives there. Hundreds of years. My curiosity was piqued. But you said there was a village. There was. Where is it now? Whereupon he burst out into a long story in German and English, so mixed up that I could not quite understand exactly what he said. But roughly I gathered that long ago, hundreds of years, Men had died there and been buried in their graves, and sounds were heard under the clay. And when the graves were opened, men and women were found rosy with life, and their mouths red with blood. And so, in haste to save their lives, I, and their souls, and here he crossed himself, those who were left fled away to other places, where the living lived, and the dead were dead, and not, not something. He was evidently afraid to speak the last words. As he proceeded with his narration, he grew more and more excited. It seemed as if imagination had got hold of him, and he ended in a perfect paroxysm of fear, white-faced, perspiring, trembling and looking round him, as if expecting that some dreadful presence would manifest itself there in the bright sunshine on the open plain. Finally, in an agony of desperation, he cried, Valpurgisnacht! and pointed to the carriage for me to get in. All my English blood rose at this, and standing back I said, You're afraid, Johann, you're afraid. Go home, I shall return alone. The walk will do me good. The carriage door was open, 
I took from the seat my oak walking stick, which I always carry on my holiday excursions, and closed the door, pointing back to Munich, and said, Go home, Johann. Walpurgisnacht doesn't concern Englishmen. The horses were now more restive than ever, and Johann was trying to hold them in, while excitedly imploring me not to do anything so foolish. I pitied the poor fellow. He was deeply in earnest, but all the same I could not help laughing. His English was quite gone now. In his anxiety he had forgotten that his only means of making me understand was to talk my language, so he jabbered away in his native German. It began to be a little tedious. After giving the direction, home, I turned to go down the crossroad into the valley. With a despairing gesture, Johann turned his horses towards Munich. I leaned on my stick and looked after him. He went slowly along the road for a while. Then there came over the crest of the hill a man, tall and thin. I could see so much in the distance. When he drew near the horses, they began to jump and kick about, then to scream with terror. Johann could not hold them in. They bolted down the road, running away madly. I watched them out of sight, then looked for the stranger, but I found that he, too, was gone. With a light heart I turned down the side road through the deepening valley to which Johann had objected. There was not the slightest reason that I could see for his objection, and I dare say I tramped for a couple of hours without thinking of time or distance, and certainly without seeing a person or a house. So far as the place was concerned it was desolation itself, but I did not notice this particularly till, on turning a bend in the road, I came upon a scattered fringe of wood. Then I recognized that I had been impressed unconsciously by the desolation of the region through which I had passed. I sat down to rest myself and began to look around. It struck me that it was considerably colder than it had been at the commencement of my walk. A sort of sighing sound seemed to be around me, with, now and then, high overhead, a sort of muffled roar. Looking upwards, I noticed that great thick clouds were drifting rapidly across the sky from north to south at a great height. There were signs of coming storm in some lofty stratum of the air. I was a little chilly, and thinking that it was the sitting still after the exercise of walking, I resumed my journey. The ground I passed over was now much more picturesque. There were no striking objects that the eye might single out, but in all there was a charm of beauty. I took little heed of time, and it was only when the deepening twilight forced itself upon me that I began to think of how I should find my way home. The brightness of the day had gone. The air was cold, and the drifting of clouds high overhead was more marked. They were accompanied by a sort of far-away rushing sound, through which seemed to come, at intervals, that mysterious cry which the driver had said came from a wolf. For a while I hesitated. I had said I would see the deserted village. So on I went, and presently came on a wide stretch of open country, shut in by hills all around. Their sides were covered with trees, which spread down to the plain, dotting, in clumps, the gentler slopes and hollows which showed here and there. I followed with my eye the winding of the road and saw that it curved close to one of the densest of these clumps, and was lost behind it. As I looked there came a cold shiver in the air, and the snow began to fall. I thought of the miles and miles of bleak country I had passed, 
and then hurried on to seek the shelter of the wood in front. Darker and darker grew the sky, and faster and heavier fell the snow, till the earth before and around me was a glistening white carpet, the further edge of which was lost in misty vagueness. The road was here but crude, and when on the level its boundaries were not so marked, and when it passed through the cuttings, and in a little while I found that I must have strayed from it, for I missed underfoot the hard surface, and my feet sank deeper in the grass and moss. Then the wind grew stronger and blew with ever-increasing force, till I was fain to run before it. The air became icy cold, and in spite of my exercise I began to suffer. The snow was now falling so thickly, and whirling around me in such rapid eddies, that I could hardly keep my eyes open. Every now and then the heavens were torn asunder by vivid lightning, and in the flashes I could see ahead of me a great mass of trees, chiefly yew and cypress all heavily coated with snow. I was soon amongst the shelter of the trees, and there in comparative silence I could hear the rush of the wind high overhead. Presently the blackness of the storm had become merged in the darkness of the night, by and by the storm seemed to be passing away. It now only came in fierce puffs or blasts. At such moments the weird sound of the wolf appeared to be echoed by many similar sounds around me. Now and again, through the black mass of drifting cloud, came a straggling ray of moonlight, which lit up the expanse and showed me that I was at the edge of a dense mass of cypress and yew trees. As the snow had ceased to fall, I walked out from the shelter and began to investigate more closely. It appeared to me that amongst so many old foundations as I had passed, there might still be standing a house in which, though in ruins, I could find some sort of shelter for a while. As I skirted the edge of the copse, I found that a low wall encircled it, and following this I presently found an opening. Here the cypress formed an alley leading up to a square mass of some kind of building. Just as I caught sight of this, however, the drifting clouds obscured the moon, and I passed up the path in darkness. The wind must have grown colder, for I felt myself shiver as I walked. But there was hope of shelter, and I groped my way blindly on. I stopped, for there was a sudden stillness. The storm had passed, and perhaps in sympathy with nature's silence, my heart seemed to cease to beat. But this was only momentarily— for suddenly the moonlight broke through the clouds, showing me that I was in a graveyard, and that the square object before me was a great massive tomb of marble, as white as the snow that lay on and all around it. With the moonlight there came a fierce sigh of the storm, which appeared to resume its course with a long, low howl as of many dogs or wolves. I was awed and shocked, and felt the cold perceptibly grow upon me, till it seemed to grip me by the heart. Then while the flood of moonlight still fell on the marble tomb, the storm gave further evidence of renewing, as though it was returning on its track. Impelled by some sort of fascination, I approached the sepulchre to see what it was, and why such a thing stood alone in such a place. I walked around it and read over the Doric door, in German, Countess Dollingen of Graz in Styria, sought and found death, 1801. On the top of the tomb, seemingly driven through the solid marble, for the structure was composed of a few vast blocks of stone, was a great iron spike or stake. 
On going to the back I saw graven, in great Russian letters, THE DEAD TRAVEL FAST. There was something so weird and uncanny about the whole thing that it gave me a turn and made me feel quite faint. I began to wish for the first time that I had taken Johann's advice. Here a thought struck me, which came under almost mysterious circumstances, and with a terrible shock. This was Valpurgis Night. Valpurgis Night, when according to the belief of millions of people, the devil was abroad, when the graves were opened and the dead came forth and walked, when all evil things of earth and air and water held revel. This very place the driver had specially shunned. This was the depopulated village of centuries ago. This was where the suicide lay, and this was the place where I was alone, unmanned, shivering with cold in a shroud of snow with a wild storm gathering again upon me. It took all my philosophy, all the religion I had been taught, all my courage, not to collapse in a paroxysm of fright. And now a perfect tornado burst upon me. The ground shook as though thousands of horses thundered across it, and this time the storm bore on its icy wings not snow, but great hailstones which drove with such violence that they might have come from the throngs of Balearic singers, hailstones that beat down leaf and branch and made the shelter of the cypresses of no more avail than though their stems were standing corn. At the first I had rushed to the nearest tree, but I was soon fain to leave it and seek the only spot that seemed to afford refuge, the deep Doric doorway of the marble tomb. There, crouching against the massive bronze door, I gained a certain amount of protection from the beating of the hailstones, for now they only drove against me as they ricocheted from the ground and the side of the marble. As I leaned against the door, it moved slightly and opened inwards. The shelter of even a tomb was welcome in that pitiless tempest, and I was about to enter it when there came a flash of forked lightning that lit up the whole expanse of the heavens. In the instant, as I am a living man, I saw, as my eyes were turned into the darkness of the tomb, a beautiful woman, with rounded cheeks and red lips, seemingly sleeping on a bear. As the thunder broke overhead, I was grasped as by the hand of a giant and hurled out into the storm. The whole thing was so sudden that before I could realize the shock, moral as well as physical, I found the hailstones beating me down. At the same time I had a strange, dominating feeling that I was not alone. I looked towards the tomb. Just then there came another blinding flash, which seemed to strike the iron stake that surmounted the tomb and to pour through to the earth, blasting and crumbling the marble as in a burst of flame. The dead woman rose for a moment of agony while she was lapped in the flame, and her bitter scream of pain was drowned in the thunder-crash. The last thing I heard was this mingling of dreadful sound, as again I was seized in the giant grasp and dragged away, while the hailstones beat on me, and the air around seemed reverberant with the howling of wolves. The last thing that I remembered was a vague, white, moving mass, as if all the graves around me had sent out the phantoms of their sheeted dead, and that they were closing in on me, through the white cloudiness of the driving hail. Gradually there came a sort of vague beginning of consciousness, then a sense of weariness that was dreadful. For a time I remembered nothing, but slowly my senses returned. 
My feet seemed positively racked with pain, yet I could not move them. They seemed to be numbed. There was an icy feeling at the back of my neck and all down my spine, and my ears, like my feet, were dead, yet in torment. But there was in my breast a sense of warmth, which was, by comparison, delicious. It was a nightmare, a physical nightmare, if one may use such an expression, for some heavy weight on my chest made it difficult for me to breathe. This period of semi-lethargy seemed to remain a long time, and as it faded away I must have slept or swooned. Then came a sort of loathing, like the first stage of seasickness, and a wild desire to be free from something, I knew not what. A vast stillness enveloped me, as though all the world were asleep or dead, only broken by the low panting, as of some animal close to me. I felt a warm rasping at my throat. Then came a consciousness of the awful truth, which chilled me to the heart and sent the blood surging up through my brain. Some great animal was lying on me, and now licking my throat. I feared to stir, but some instinct of prudence bade me lie still. But the brute seemed to realize that there was now some change in me, for it raised its head. Through my eyelashes I saw above me the two great flaming eyes of a gigantic wolf. Its sharp white teeth gleamed in the gaping red mouth, and I could feel its hot breath fierce and acrid upon me. For another spell of time I remembered no more. Then I became conscious of a low growl, followed by a yelp, renewed again and again. Then seemingly very far away I heard a Halloa! Halloa! as of many voices calling in unison. Cautiously I raised my head and looked in the direction whence the sound came. But the cemetery blocked my view. The wolf still continued to yelp in a strange way and a red glare began to move around the grove of cypresses, as though following the sound. As the voices drew closer, the wolf yelped faster and louder. I feared to make either sound or motion. Nearer came the red glow over the white pall which stretched into the darkness around me. Then all at once from beyond the trees there came, at a trot, a troop of horsemen bearing torches. The wolf rose from my breast and made for the cemetery, I saw one of the horsemen, soldiers by their caps and long military cloaks, raise his carbine and take aim. A companion knocked up his arm and I heard the ball whiz over my head. He had evidently taken my body for that of the wolf. Another sighted the animal as it slunk away and a shot followed. Then, at a gallop, the troop rode forward, some towards me, others following the wolf as it disappeared amongst the snow-clad cypresses. As they drew nearer, I tried to move, but was powerless, although I could see and hear all that went on around me. Two or three of the soldiers jumped from their horses and knelt beside me. One of them raised my head and placed his hand over my heart. "'Good news, comrades,' he cried. "'His heart still beats.' Then some brandy was poured down my throat. It put vigour into me, and I was able to open my eyes fully and look around. Lights and shadows were moving among the trees, and I heard men call to one another. They drew together, uttering frightened exclamations, and the lights flashed as the others came pouring out of the cemetery pell-mell, like men possessed. When the further ones came close to us, those who were around me asked them eagerly, "'Well, have you found him?' The reply rang out hurriedly, "'No, no, come away quick, quick. This is no place to stay, and on this of all nights.' 
What is it? was the question, asked in all manner of keys. The answer came variously and all indefinitely, as though the men were moved by some common impulse to speak, yet were restrained by some common fear from giving their thoughts. It, it, indeed, gibbered one, whose wits had plainly given out for the moment. A wolf, and yet not a wolf, another put in shudderingly. No use trying for him without the sacred bullet, a third remarked in a more ordinary manner. Serve us right for coming out on this night. Truly we have earned our thousand marks, were the ejaculations of a fourth. There was blood on the broken marble, another said after a pause. The lightning never bought that there, and for him, is he safe? Look at his throat. See, comrades, the wolf has been lying on him and keeping his blood warm. The officer looked at my throat and replied, He's all right. The skin is not pierced. What does it all mean? We should never have found him but for the yelping of the wolf. "'What came of it?' asked the man who was holding up my head, and who seemed the least panic-stricken of the party, for his hands were steady and without tremor. On his sleeve was the chevron of a petty officer. "'It went to its home,' answered the man, whose long face was pallid, and who actually shook with terror as he glanced around him fearfully. "'There are graves enough there in which it may lie,' Come, comrades, come quickly, let us leave this cursed spot. The officer raised me to a sitting posture, as he uttered a word of command. Then several men placed me upon a horse. He sprang to the saddle behind me, took me in his arms, gave the word to advance, and turning our faces away from the cypresses, we rode away in swift military order. As yet my tongue refused its office, and I was perforce silent. I must have fallen asleep, for the next thing I remembered was finding myself standing up, supported by a soldier on each side of me. It was almost broad daylight, and to the north a red streak of sunlight was reflected, like a path of blood, over the waste of snow. The officer was telling the men to say nothing of what they had seen, except that they found an English stranger guarded by a large dog. Dog! That was no dog! cut in the man who had exhibited such fear. I think I know a wolf when I see one. The young officer answered calmly. I said dog. Dog, reiterated the other ironically. It was evident that his courage was rising with the sun, and pointing to me he said, Look at his throat. Is that the work of a dog, master? Instinctively I raised my hand to my throat, and as I touched it I cried out in pain. The men crowded round to look some stooping down from their saddles, and again there came the calm voice of the young officer, a dog, as I said, if aught else were said, we should only be laughed at. I was then mounted behind a trooper, and we rode on into the suburbs of Munich. Here we came across a stray carriage, into which I was lifted, and it was driven off to the Quatre Saisons, the young officer accompanying me, whilst a trooper followed with his horse, and the others rode off to their barracks. When we arrived, Herr Delbruck rushed so quickly down the steps to meet me that it was apparent he had been watching within. Taking me by both hands, he solicitously led me in. The officer saluted me and was turning to withdraw when I recognized his purpose and insisted that he should come to my rooms. Over a glass of wine I warmly thanked him and his brave comrades for saving me. He replied simply that he was more than glad, and that Herr Delbruck 
had at first taken steps to make all the searching party pleased, at which ambiguous utterance the maître d'hôtel smiled, while the officer pleaded duty and withdrew. But Herr Delbruck, I inquired, how and why was it that soldiers searched for me? He shrugged his shoulders, as if in depreciation of his own deed, as he replied, I was so fortunate as to obtain leave from the commander of the regiment in which I served, to ask for volunteers. But how did you know I was lost? I asked. The driver came hither with the remains of his carriage, which had been upset when the horses ran away. But surely you would not send a search party of soldiers merely on his account? Oh, no, he answered. But even before the coachman arrived, I had this telegram from the boyar whose guest you are, and he took from his pocket a telegram, which he handed to me, and I read. Beastritz. Be careful of my guest. His safety is most precious to me. Should aught happen to him, or if he be missed, spare nothing to find him and ensure his safety. He is English and therefore adventurous. There are often dangers from snow and wolves at night. Lose not a moment if you suspect harm to him. I answer your zeal with my fortune. Dracula As I held the telegram in my hand, the room seemed to whirl around me, and if the attentive maître d'hôtel had not caught me, I think I should have fallen. There was something so strange in all this, something so weird and impossible to imagine, that there grew on me a sense of my being in some way the sport of opposite forces, the mere vague idea of which seemed in a way to paralyse me. I was certainly under some form of mysterious protection. From a distant country had come, in the very nick of time, a message that took me out of the danger of the snow-sleep and the jaws of the wolf. Hi, I'm Jesse. Oh, my name's John Feaster. And we are going to be discussing Dracula's Guest by Bram Stoker. First published in 1914, we're told. Yep. Dracula's Guest and Other Weird Stories. Right. But uh, first I want to talk about our sponsor. And that is Downcast. Downcast is an app for iPhone and, and iPads, but it's a replacement for the podcast app or the music app on your iPhone. And it's a super customizable podcast app. It basically allows you to listen to podcasts on the go. You are able to uh, sync your iPhone without actually hooking it up to your computer. And uh, I use it every day. You you listen to podcasts, right, John? Yes, I listen to podcasts often. I've heard of this app. Uh, what what podcast do you listen to? Oh goodness gracious! I listen to uh, Mark Marin. I listen to Comedy Bang Bang. I listen to the HP Podcraft. I listen to SFF oh, Audio. I'll tell you the a HP Podcraft. Oh, and thank you for the SFF Audio podcast well, plug. Um, the the HP Podcraft one is a is a subscriber only one, or do you listen to the free one? Uh, I listen to the free, I listen to the free one when I can. I let's not go into my financial situation. <laughs> so you 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 don't have the subscription, the premium subscription for that one. <sighs> no, alas, not. Uh, well, you're missing out. But uh, let me tell you, I had to subscribe to that one, and one of the issues I was worried about um, as soon as I got my Downcast app, uh, I because I. I had to change my phone, and that meant the new iOS system. I had to change my 
app because the old app, the music app, used to be called the iPod app, mm-hmm. uh, didn't work anymore. It didn't work with podcasts anyways. It works with audiobooks still, but it's, it's w- much worse than it used to be. So now the new podcast app is, uh, the podcast app, uh, didn't work anymore. So I had to get a new one. I looked at Downcast and, and I wanted to transfer all my old podcasts over. Um, and I thought, well, I'll do it manually because I don't know about exporting XML. And everything worked fine. It was so smooth and perfect. But then I came to the subscriber only one, which is you have to enter a passcode. And I'm like, oh, crap, I don't know how to do this because I type in the RSS feed and it just doesn't work. Well, I thought, okay, well, I'll, um, I'll contact uh, Downcast on Twitter and see, see if they can fix me. About 10 seconds after I did that, I, I thought, well, let me just see what these buttons at the bottom do. And I figured out how you can just enter the passcode right at the bottom. It was, it was, it, it's incredibly intuitive app, really useful, but super deep. It allows you to go down deep into modifying your po- customized podcast feed. So, for example, uh, for this show, um, we're doing Dracula's Guest. I wanted to re-listen to HP Podcraft's version of that. They they talked about it on their show, and I thought, well, I could go to my computer and sync it, but I don't need to. The Downcast app allows you to look back at other podcasts that you've had. If Even if they're not on your phone, you can still download them within the phone, and you can set it so that it's a show you don't want to lose. You can set it to lock, so it'll always stay on your phone. And I did that this week because I didn't want to lose my spot if I fall asleep while listening. Um, it's super handy and it's super useful. And thus ends our sponsorship. Awesome. All right. So Dracula's guest. Uh, you you were asking me before the podcast started when I first read this. When did you first read it? Uh, I first read this sometime in the 80s, and I didn't understand it. I was yeah, I, I, I can see that. I totally see that. You only it's know kind of if they didn't mention Dracula, you wouldn't know it's Jonathan Harker. If it, Well, uh, there's an argument that it's not Jonathan Harker. I, I actually prefer that argument. Um, but uh, that makes it more confusing, and if Dracula wasn't in the title or I guess in the note at the end, you totally wouldn't know that Dracula was involved in the story, right? I found a reference from Leslie S. Klinger, who had access right. to Stoker's original... She says that there was that she's certain that this was part of the original story because well, she was working with the original manuscript for her book, and such is a deleted sentence of Harker commenting that his throat is still sore from the licking of the gray wolf's file-like tongue. Implying that it has to have been. I think that the, that it may be portion, a portion of what was in the original book, but I think it was cleaned up a bit later, possibly for independent. Um, it just just. It's. I think it. I think it works marvelously on its own. If you oh, have Dracula in the background, you know, I I quite like this story. Um, but I I, I like the idea that it's not Harker, that it's just somebody else. But I agree that it's. It's it's probable that it was supposed to be him, even though it's unnamed. The narrator is unnamed. 
Um, I mean, he's he's on a, his way to meet Dracula, right? Mm-hmm. It's called Dracula's guest. Eventually, that guest will be uh, Harker, right? So, all things being equal, this is Jonathan Harker. However, uh, I like seeing this story as a special unit all its own. Um, and I think it works incredibly well that way, as long as you've got Dracula in the background, right? And he really is in the background in this, unless you think he's the wolf. Do you think he's the wolf? It could be. I- I'm assuming that this Countess Dolingen is one of the, um, you know, weird sisters who the- he later encounters inside inside the castle, and who later yeah. pursue and bedevil um, uh, the the group that's uh, following Dracula later. Uh, I think that... Possible. Uh, yeah, I think that... And there's also a connection to Carmilla. Uh, I want to say Carmilla, but you say Carmilla. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> it's okay, you're probably right. Uh, but I think Carmilla sounds cooler for some reason. It does. I don't know. But um, on the on the tomb, what was the name of the lady in the tomb? Uh, yeah. One moment here. Right? Countess Dolingen of Graz. Right. And it says something about her on the tomb, saying that she's from Styria. Yes. Sought and found death. Right. Now, Styria, I wasn't familiar with it until I looked it up uh, with regards to Carmilla, mm-hmm. slash Carmia. And uh, that's by J. Sheridan Lafanu. Uh, Lafanu, I guess it is. And Lafanu, yes. Or, or, or Sheridan Lafanu. Lafanu, yeah. Um We'll never and, know how he pronounced it. Yeah, that's true. Probably not. Carmilla, though, or Carmilla, is set in in Styria, which is a province of uh, Austria. I assume near the border with uh, more Draculish lands. Uh, I could not say for sure, uh, but the, I think I think that that was a connection, maybe a shout out uh, by Stoker, don't you think? To, yes, uh, uh, an homage. Yes. To, uh, Which to is what the, we used to call shout-outs. Yeah, that's what they called it, or, or an illusion. Ah. <laughs> is what I tell my students to call them. Don't call them shout-outs. Even better. Um, yeah. Uh, so I thought that was nice, and uh, there's some striking images. This is a very well-written short story, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, a little bit, um, a little bit confusing, but stri- it's got some really striking images. What what are the what's the most striking image for you in this story? Uh, honestly, for, uh, encountering for the first time the dead travel fast. Uh, even though I it, it, I wonder right. why I wonder why it's written it's written in Russian, but it is written on the back of the tomb, so it might have been in a strange way a sort of vandalism uh, by oh. an earlier encounter with someone who was perhaps less lucky than this gentleman. Uh, the the wolf itself, the, yeah, yeah. Of course, the ladies very there, but the wolf itself, for me, dominates my mental image of the story. So visceral, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the, you can almost feel the licking happening. A wolf, and yet not a wolf. Yeah. <sighs> um, I, I I'm also struck, uh, <laughs> not metaphorically, by the. The spike sticking out of the top of the tomb. Is that like a stake through the lady's heart? Well, we're, we have to remember that the, that the premise of, uh, 
well, there's a certain there's a certain level of all vampires do this, this stake through the heart will do this, and so forth. In Dracula, they kill Dracula by stabbing him with knives. Granted, they stab him in the heart, but still, they stab him in the and in, in, in the heart with Bowie knives and a kukri knife, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. As as such, the the lore of vampires isn't quite as established. I'm pretty sure, yes, it is a stake, just not the wooden stake that we think of traditionally with hammer films and uh, mm-hmm. and such. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think uh, I was. We're going to do Carmilla as a show itself Say later Carmilla. on. It sounds so European. I I like it better, Carmilla. We're going to do Carmilla later on. Um, and I was surprised about how many of the, you know, fully formed vampire features that we actually have in that story, considering it is, it precedes Dracula proper, um, by a couple of decades. And. Well, doesn't Varney yeah, the vampire d- d- precede them all? Varney, Varney precedes them all. Um, I don't think by a lot, but Varney is also, I mean, apparently that's wildly inconsistent when it comes to the, the yeah. mythology. Whereas I, 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 one of the nice things about, um, Carmilla, Carmilla is that it's a really well-written story. Mm. And I think this one is likewise, it's, it's it, an incredible amount of things happen, um, with very little action. A lot of striking images. I mean, the the soldiers riding up. Where is that coming from? That it seems like it, it's a Deus Ex Machina, right? Yes. And then yet later on, it's not. And we've got a figure on the road, uh, who we think is Dracula. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Well, we assume that the wolf is Dracula too, don't we? Yeah, yeah. It's it's very. But the, but the wolf is not gonna. It's not there. I mean, licking his throat. It's not tearing his throat out, mm-hmm. right? The wolf, the wolf saves him. Dracula, basically, Dracula yeah. saves him for later. Mm, this was my meal, my dear. Mm-mm, tasty. Yes. He's just getting a whiff before the... Uh, but see, he doesn't even really want to kill Hark Parker, right? No, he needs Harker. But why does he keep... I mean, this is not in Drac- Dracula's guest. It's in Dracula's... Just regular Dracula. But why does he keep Harker there long after... The business is concluded. Is 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 he like fattening him up for the for the for a later meal? Or I always felt that he was, though it's not really um, explicitly said. I always felt he was observing him, perhaps trying to get down his mannerisms. Surely he couldn't act like an Eng- like an Englishman. I don't think that Dracula. We don't really spend much time in Dracula, getting to know Dracula in England. Rather, we encounter oh. other people who have encountered Dracula. But perhaps he wishes to know the proper things to do. He doesn't want to do something like a 14th century or 15th century uh, Transylvanian nobleman would do. Right. Yeah. Uh, the the enig- enigmatic aspect of that, I think, is also reflected in this, this aborted first chapter or this short story on its own um, it, that was an aborted chapter. It, it, what, what, is, what is going on? So even the plot is kind of unclear. There's a guy, the unnamed narrator, is on a, he's in a carriage touring the countryside? Uh, on a visit to Munich, from what I have here? Yeah. Okay, so he's on a visit to Munich, and on Walpurgis Night, you have to be home by you have to be home by dark. That's the premise, right? Okay, but instead of going 
just, you know, uh, to wherever he's going, they come to a crossroads and the driver gets upset saying, we can't go down there, but the, the narrator, that's right. And the narrator wants to go down that way. And he says, well, if you don't want to go, I'll go myself. Why, why is he going down there? (sighs) To advance the plot. I guess. Well, 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 technically speaking, he's going down there because he has to go to Castle Dracula uh, at some point in time. But he isn't quite – this is why I'm reasonably certain that portions of this have been – wouldn't have been different if they had been included in the original story. I think that Mm -hmm. this has been partially rewritten. I don't think this is just just a vignette clip from the original tale and then – laid down in front of you exactly as is. I agree. You know, I, I think that it's been prepared. I think he was possibly thinking, I'll publish this myself someday. Maybe it was, Or maybe it was just a, a mental exercise. I'll clean it up for eventual publication. And then he mm-hmm. passed away. It seems, it seems that it's often, uh, in my memory, it is incorporated into the actual adaptations of Dracula. Um... As sort of a pre, you know, Harker showing up sequence. Because the Dracula itself is, is all letters, right? Letters and communiques. Whereas this is, is, uh, doesn't feel like a letter. Doesn't feel, it feels much more visceral, much more uh, raw. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the enigmatic reactions and enigmatic situations, make it oh, one of those weird tales that I like so much. Uh, you know, you don't know why people are doing things, but they're doing them, and they seem to have strong reactions. So when when the soldiers turn up, and they, you know, bring up their carbines and start shooting, um, uh, I don't know if they're shooting at him. They're shooting, they're, like, what are they there for? Are they just hunting wolves? Um, coming out of a snowstorm? It's so um, striking as an image. Do you do you think that that was at all intentional, or is it just a byproduct of the the fact that it was sort of a excerpted cleanup? It, what, what do you think? It could be. It could just be the the writing of the time period. You re- read books of the of, of the era, and guys do just show up at the la- at the last minute and and rescue people, not for any sensible reason other than we've got to keep this person alive for the story. And this is a this is an interestingly presented way to do it. Uh, well, it totally is explained though at the end, right? I mean, Dracula sent those guys basically uh, indirectly. Right? Dracula is the puppet master behind practically everything in here, except I believe for the Countess. Actually, in her own way, though, Gra- right. though Dracula is the most striking figure. The Countess is the most interesting figure, though you don't really, really get to meet her. It, I, I have this impression. What that is her if, motivation? She wants blood. Is that is that what she's she's after? She's after more life. Well, she is a vampire, so yes, of course. I, yeah. I, I mean, I mean, but she's in competition. I mean, in the context that if Dracula were to suddenly be removed in in this locality, Dracula's gone. Castle Dracula's gone. If Dracula were removed, Countess Dolingen would be considered the dangerous evil in, in the vicinity. There's always something else just waiting in the wings to to step in and become the next bad guy in, in, in any situation. So the, the, the thing that makes Dracula uh, a force is not that he is the baddest of the badass vampires as much as 
he he's like he's he's on a colonial mission, right? <laughs> he's, he's he's got plans that involve him, you know. In my own way, with, I've often wondered about that. Why is he just? Why is he leaving an area where he's so well established to go to England, where everything is? He doesn't know anything about the area. About the area yeah. in the original in the original book, one of the, one of the things that comes to me repeatedly is when you have Jonathan Harker and he's in Castle Dracula, and there are a couple of rooms he's told he can go into, and those rooms mm-hmm. seem comparably clean and tidy. And when he goes anywhere else, everything is a sagging, decaying mess. Things have been left untouched right. for hundred years, and you know that that veneer of normalcy in those specific rooms that's the fake that's a set piece for his mm-hmm. for 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 him period if he wasn't there if he wasn't being in, be, had, hadn't been invited to castle dracula the rest of the rest of the house where everything is ancient and decrepit and falling apart that's the real castle dracula i have a feeling that dracula in his own way is reaching out to England, not simply as a new food source. He has a food source. He has sufficient food sources. I've, I've always felt in a strange way it might be just prior to a... Oh, it's something that, that occurs often in, uh, in modern vampire fiction, that, that period where the vampires are expanding suddenly, they're, they're converting people left and right and, 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 and forming a sort, a sort of Empire. Uh, you had a little, you had that in mm. Day Thirst. You had that uh, in his own way in precisely in uh, in Salem's Lot on a small scale. But you know it wasn't mm. going. To, it wasn't going to end there. Well, that goes back to Dracula. Precisely. Though, right? Precisely. Or uh, that Lovecraft's description of what's happening in the plot of of Dracula is is fascinating because it does sort of point to the fact that he basically wants to turn the British Empire into a, a vampire kingdom or something, right? And the fact that it, it, it's kind of like the it's kind of like the War of the Worlds. Uh, what what Wells is doing is, you know, he's saying we're the mightiest empire on earth, but we could be defeated by uh, by somebody, and it would be just we are being colonized in the same way. But with Dracula, it's much more. Um, I keep using this word visceral. It's much more about about getting inside of you and and sucking out you know your your precious bodily fluids um than it is about you know sort of teaching you a political lesson it he's he's the threat from the east mm-hmm. right he's he's not exactly the yellow peril but he's insidious you, in the same way or if you or if you want to think from this point of view this is a personal opinion here you've read uh, the case mm-hmm. of charles dexter ward I mm-hmm. think about I think about that story for one thing. It's presented in in a somewhat similar way, although not entirely. Since you know our our primary heroes are scholars who are stumbling around in the dark, not quite realizing that this thing from the past is coming to infect them. It, it's a it's a commonly recur- recurring subject in in fiction. Period. Something from the outside, from another era, from another dimension, space, and this, in this case, from a more from a more ancient time, both in Charles mm-hmm. Dexter Ward and in Dracula, is right out of fairy tales almost. It right? is coming to take what we have and can quite effectively do it, and maybe we could we could fight it off. But in in 
all these situations, the, the victory seems to be not haphazard, but last minute, almost desperate. There's a good chance in Dracula, nine times out of ten, Van Helsing and the rest of his crew die. If, if that were to actually, actually, if those events were actually to happen, if they were to actually occur in, in, in an organic situation, Dracula should be so much more pre- uh, impressive than he is in that in that mm-hmm. book. I, I suppose, in a strange way, that's why I like Dracula's guest because Dracula has he doesn't seem to really have any weaknesses here. He's not. No, he's full. He's everywhere. He's not being he's chased across, uh, halfway across across Europe with absolutely no, the concept in Dracula that they could just stop and Dracula could murder them all in a tavern. That's never even even vaguely presented, and it's it's never really even a, even a possibility in that book. Although it seems like it should be. Uh, I don't know. So so the weather. Uh, th- that's the other thing that really is striking to me. Evocative, very yes. So uh, I mean, it, it's cold. It's, it's snow starts pouring down. It's a snowstorm. You can't see anything, and then suddenly he's stumbled into the tomb, which is the same color as the snow, mm-hmm. right? And he's sheltering himself, and then it's hailing, right? And it's like, wow, he didn't want to go in this tomb. <laughs> it, he didn't want to go near it. It, it but, drives him into the tomb. But I suppose it's connected to the traditional vampiric, well, at, at least traditional from this story, which becomes tradition from these stories, that vampires can control the weather, at least the worst portions of yeah. it. Yeah, I mean, the thunderclap that traditionally comes when, you know, you will be my guest, and he closes the door, right, or whatever it would be, um, is it's... The weather is evocative of the emotion behind the the fear of the character. Even though the character doesn't seem afraid, he doesn't say, I'm afraid. He, exactly, he he's relating it. So the weather, in this case, the white snow is a shroud, right? Oh, nice. Um, that's really good writing. This is, I, I think this is, a, in fact, is better written than most of Dracula. I, I'm... Not sure why that is. It seems like it shouldn't be, but maybe it's because this is. It doesn't seem like uh, one of those epistolary, you know, sort of let's explain how we happen to be relating these events. Dracula's. I mean, the way Dracula shows up as a transformative um, uh, d- drama, right? It, it, they never do it in an epistolary way, right? Even Bram Stoker's Dracula, the movie version, right? Uh, what little they have about it being related by letters is pretty much shuffled off off screen, right? It's all about showing. Uh, and in this case, when we do see Dracula, he's not on screen exactly. He's there, but he's not in the way that we would recognize him. And yet he's omnipresent. Um, and it just seems like this is... I really like this story. I don't know why I, I, I can explain it better it's than that. It's a wonderfully it's just, evocative story. Evocative. Very. That's the word. Evocative. It's 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 all mood and... Okay. It may lack a... I don't know what happened before or after the story. If you were to remove the concept of Dracula itself. The, the story of Dracula. It's, the story makes no sense. But within, yeah. within its boundaries, within its boundaries, it is perfect. It... it 
The story doesn't need to be explained any more than cheesecake needs to be explained to be enjoyed. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that that's about it. That's why I was kind of worried about talking about this because there isn't that much to talk about. We end up talking about the book Dracula rather than this short story. But um, by the same token, I think uh, there's something because it it feels like it belongs in the same. Maybe it's like it's what happened before the novel started, right? <laughs> it's basically how we have to well, look at it. Well, I've been it. trying to figure out if okay. Of course, we know Camilla. Camilla. We know that. I was trying to trying to look around on the internet, uh, trying to find some reference to well, whether or not there was originally an actual Countess Dolingen. I mean, it, that, that maybe could be mm-hmm. was based on. I can't find any real reference. I was thinking, well, anything that could that could have been a movie adaption, not so much of Camille, but of this. And I find reference to a there's not, 19, there's no a 1980 yet. movie called The Games of Countess Dolingen. And I thought, aha, huh. well. And so I I, I I managed to find some find some reference to it after typing in the French words Les Jeux de la Comtesse Dolingen de Graz. And the only mm. and from Rotten Tomatoes, I get this this reference. Which doesn't sound right. This complex and puzzling French drama walks the fine line between fiction and the very and the very real as it tells the tale of a strangely erotic event and the life of a little girl and the musings of a schizophrenic woman. Ah, that's Carmilla. <laughs> or Carmilla. Okay. It Why does that not sound right to me? Yeah. I, it, it it must be the loosest of adaptions. Yeah. Well, it's tying the two and together. And how on earth though, is this a more entertaining name than Carmilla, or a more evocative no. name? Yeah. Well, I mean, Carmilla or Carmilla doesn't. Carmilla, yeah. As long, it, you know, if if you don't see it in the context of vampires, it doesn't really, uh, it it doesn't really evoke anything. It's just a name. It's vampirism, and like I said, it doesn't no. say horror. It's just it's a drama. Okay. And I understand, Carmilla is not really a horror story in the con- that context. There's tons of fiction like that. There aren't so much horror stories, but they can still be horrific, or at the mm-hmm. very least, chilling. Mm-hmm. This one is chilling uh, in the sense that we're out in the winter. Um, it's, <laughs> it's chilling in that, that I, oh. you, you're constantly awash with his danger. He is always viscerally yeah. in tr- in trouble. He's Always, he's always just shy of in death. Exactly. Freezing to death. And even, he's in danger of being eaten, but he doesn't even, even know when it. He's re- when he's rescued, it's even when even when he's rescued, it's, re- it's really just he he's been re- rescued from he's been saved from a panther by a wolf, and the wolf is yeah. still going to eat him. What's so striking is is that he's almost in the position of a woman in this in a traditional story, right? Um, most of the vampirism that happens in in the book proper is directed towards women, right? Uh, Lucy and uh, the other one, uh, Lucy Vesterna, and who's the other one? Mina Harker, Mina Harker right? And then, of course, there's the vamp- vampiric women. Um, but in this case, the licking of the throat is not of of a, a woman. It's she, she's not, you know being 
rescue she is not being rescued it's a he who's being rescued it's a he who is um taken up by the brave soldiers and carried off to his destination um the brave soldiers coming to rescue him uh it feels like a much more female situation and the the relationship between uh vampirism and sex is it goes at least back to <laughs> Carmia or maybe I don't know much about Varney and sexu- sexuality, but I believe it's in there as well. I never got through Varney. No, you can get through a good opening sequence, a very good opening sequence. But the rest of that story is just the the best word I can think of is it's interminable. You yeah, wind up that's right, that's you wind up hating everything. When is Varney going to show up and kill everybody? And he never does. Yeah, that's true. Uh, in this one, the the sexuality is uh, it seems absent. Um, you know, there's no um, uh, he's he's attractive and he's not attractive because I mean there's no guy right. There's no the only sensuality is in the form of the tongue of the wolf and the weather itself, right? The caress of the weather, the bed of the uh, inside the tomb. The well, right. also we'll say one moment here. For reference: the beautiful woman with rounded cheeks and red lips, seemingly <laughs> asleep, sleeping on a beer, or by beer buyer. I never really. I think it. Buyer, yeah. I think it beer is how it's pronounced, though. <laughs> well, it, sleeping on a beer is is going to make some people see the wrong I thing. Understand. So we should pronounce it buyer. <laughs> the buyer is the place where the coffin is held, or in this case, I guess the open sarcophagus or whatever it is. It, is that it's, it's a place in the church or, or the tomb where the coffin is raised up so that you can go in and observe it or kiss it or whatever you want. <laughs> put, put some things in I it. I would have thought they. I don't know. I don't know enough. I don't know enough about uh, about burial practices at this time or involving people this rich. Would would, would they were very elaborate. Would they have been left time. on the beer on the beer forever? Or yeah, so I have a feeling when you have when you get in there and it's a whole set piece the, the, the yeah. with, with everything laid out just as it is. I don't believe that prior to his appearance it was exactly like that. Waiting to encounter. Yeah, so I think what's this going is on a, a, exactly? a glamour. Is that is is that a good term? A a nice. illusion or or something that's been conjured into view as part of a in his own way an undead seduction towards him. Yeah, if if we go back, working backwards, right? Dracula's motivation is to get Jonathan Harker to his castle so he can get the business done, settled, and then, uh, as you were saying, you know, copy copy up some mannerisms so he can fit into uh, high society or at least medium society in in England so he can take over the British monarchy, a la uh, Anno Dracula, etc. Right? Um, what is uh, the Countess's motivation? I think it's probably, if we follow the logic, it's similar. Except she's she's all about um, getting him into the tomb, not into Dracula's castle, because that's where she lives. Now, it could be that this is her area. Uh, you know, she's got some castle of her own. But I think we can just assume that her tomb is her her castle, and the way that Dracula can dress up his 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 uh, his tomb. The countess can dress up her tomb. I notice they're both they're both counts and countesses. Right? Uh, well, Tiva's Bram Stoker. You, you're never going to have a working class vampire in a British novel. 
Everyone has to be of some level of importance because nobility is just naturally better. It, it, well, it's subconscious, I think. I think but it, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, uh, the, this there's uh, there's arguments. You know, I think it was I was listening to Eric Rabkin talking about the difference between vampirism and werewolfism, lycanthropy, was that lycanthropy was the working class and the poor classes, uh, you know, fear, and uh, vampirism is the is the upper class fear, right? So vampires don't tend to uh, suck the blood, uh, Dr- Dracula-style vampires, suck the blood from people of lower classes. Well, it... For, for the sake of the, survivability, I suppose. I mean, he does drink the blood. I'm assuming of all the sailors on board on board the uh, on board the ship right. and such. But it always, in that sense, it always seems to be well, just consumptive. It's the, the equivalent of eating a Big Mac. It's just I'm simply <laughs> acquiring sustenance. There was no thought of oh, and then I'll keep these sailors around as my undead minions. I don't think that was ever part of the case. Yeah, he barely made it to the shore. I mean, there was only one guy left. He 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 was almost out of control in his uh, his rapacious sucking. Um, oh, that's such a good but, sequence. Sorry, you got me nostalgic for that book. That whole sequence <laughs> with the captain, la- I mean, sorry, with the sa- the sailor. I think it's the captain lashed to the to the yeah, to the, to the, the wheel, wheel. Yeah. That's such an evocative sequence. It is, and uh, the. The um, the power of the image, right? The ship being named Demeter, even though we don't know exactly, like in the same Walpurgis Night, right? You know, we know vaguely that that's not a good thing that it happens to be Walpurgis Night, right? But was it that this lady's, um, this countess's power is greater on this night? Is that why Dracula can transform into a wolf and not just be the children of the night are my friends? He he can actually become one because it's Walpurgis night. It's God, you're. It's not you're clear. Sne- you're sneaking in, into what might possibly someone, an outsider, could observe this. Uh, that as well, yeah, that that could be. They they could make that they could make that assumption that. Uh, this is what it is, but honestly, for Bram Stoker, I, I think it's simply I don't think he's so much setting down hmm, I wonder when they're going to be more powerful when they're... I think it's just they have the, they have the abilities that they need for the, t- for the particular situation, like uh, Spock having that inner, uh, that inner eyelid right. that keeps him from going blind and yet it was never mentioned before, and you know right Never need men- be mentioned again. Um, I think that that's right. However, I also think that when you read these stories, no, Lovecraft is very much in this vein as well. When you read these stories, the villagers are always right. They're not right for the right reasons, but they're always right. Yes. Right. So, in the case of the 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 um, dreams in the witch house, right? The the uh, Catholic uh, uh, people who are, you know, getting the lights on the candles. Oh, uh, oh, wait. To... And it is the Haunter of the Dark. That... I was going to say the Lurker of the Crypt or something like that. Yeah. Well, but what, what, what was what was the joke? Uh, some reviewer back in the the 30s in an issue of Weird Tales made reference to uh, Lovecraft that practically every other story of his could be called The Thing in My Coffin. <laughs> in my coffin. Uh, oh, whisper. Uh, 
Anyway, the common the common people are almost always right in the sense, but that's because they have um, they have a they don't understand the reason what why they're right. Nobody understands the if you will the biology of vampires. Mm. No, nope. yeah, the science. Nobody behind. locally under, understands. Same thing with Lovecraft. Nobody really understands. Well, this can't be done, and this can't be done. But they they know the they know it needs to be done but they know it from shared tradition a sort of a shared commonality that's been passed down mm-hmm. not because they've worked it out ahead of time ah this means this and that means that and so forth it's a culture yeah it's a culture and um and because the What's outsider, nice about because that. the outsider who comes in, and it's always an outsider who comes blundering into the situation, whether his name is Jonathan Harker or Charles Dexter Ward, who, mm-hmm. who steps in the situation, doesn't respect this no, this knowledge because the people who have it, in their opinion, didn't get it the right way. To them, mm-hmm. it's just tradition, and of course, well. Exactly. You're yeah. just saying this because of this, but there's a sensible reason behind it, some kernel of truth. Mm-hmm. Sorry. Yeah, and that's 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 right. So it echoes sort of the, uh, you know, the Europeans come to North America. Um, the place is teeming with uh, animals, and what do the Europeans do? They say, "Kill them! Get that money out of the market! Right? Get those furs to market!" And the natives, although uh, they had their own issue with, uh, you know, killing all the giant animals off uh, tens of thousands of years ago, have somehow developed a uh, an ecology ecological a balance. Yeah, so that so that you know you only kill this animal this time of this season, right? And only kill the only kill the male, right? You know that sort of hunting ethos that we now think about is is also what's happening here. People say it's Walpurgis night, don't go out too late. I can't explain exactly why. My English isn't so great. But don't go down that road because that road is particularly dangerous uh at this time of year and it's just our culture just and of course the attraction that leads him down there seems it's not exactly parallel to the attraction that Harker has. Have you seen The Woman in Black? You know that uh, uh, it's an adaptation of a novel from the 1980, I think. I read The, read the Woman in Black just, I think, seven oh, okay. days ago. Oh, wow. The last Sunday are... that I finished it up. I haven't read it. The ending wasn't the same as, as the, uh, well, the television adaption. Because mm. there was a the tel- television adaption before. Harry Potter. Yes, I'm talking about that one, not the, yeah. not the uh, Harry Potter they, version. They're very, um, they're, but, they are very similar. Yeah, but it's the same attraction. Like Harker, the Harker character uh, from Dracula is sent by his boss to, you know, Transylvania. It's not. Um, it's not a. You know, oh, I'm just going to go visit Transylvania, right? He's he's on a work he's on a work uh flight or whatever it is right um in this case our unnamed narrator probably jonathan harker is walking down the road and he sees or riding down the road driving down the road and then they see a crossroads and he says i want to go that way um and in defiance of the uh the writer who can't explain it he is attracted um, and that does totally seem like glamour, right? But it's, in this case, it's not the glamour of Dracula. 
that was drawing, you know, all the way to England, this, this Harker fellow. It was the glamour of this particular lady vampire. Yes. Yes. And so Dracula's, oh, gotta correct the chorus here. Get him back on course. Ooh, have a little lick of his throat. I can envision, oh. I can envision animals following just wolves, just whatever, what, whatever's it. I can envision thousands of tiny eyes watching Jonathan Harker as he's mm. moving towards Castle Dracula. And re- mm. and the reason there's a delay here between point A, between point A and point B, I mean, Dracula doesn't just step in and, and take over the situation immediately, is because he has to be informed, perhaps through their eyes, as by mm. exactly what's happening. In some way, I think Countess Do, uh, Dolingen, if you were going to look at it from the, from this point of view, I think that Countess Dolingen is possibly aware that Dracula is leaving, is going, it needs this person, and that this might actually, in some strange way, be the last move of an old chess match between these two. That perhaps Dracula mm. and Dolingen have moved against each other repeatedly in the past. What does the, what does the, in that context, what does the quote, the somewhat um, inscribed on the back quote, the dead travel the fast? Dead travel fast. Is that re- referencing Dracula? Because he certainly travels quickly throughout the neighborhood. I think that I think that ref, that that's that's a reference to either of them. Although in this particular situation, it might it, in this particular situation. Uh, first off, it's in Russian, which yeah. makes me think of perhaps a previous vampire slayer, a previous person involved in this in this in this uh, sort of oh. battle. Not that may, it, maybe it is not a specific reference from from Dracula or any or anything like that you can encounter so many different um explanations as as to what that's supposed to mean in that particular setting i have a feeling it is a warning chiseled into the back of her of her tombstone for future visitors to the, to the site to to warn them yeah it's it's curious that it's not on the front if it was on the front then that would be the official you know line uh but uh, it's sort of like the left-handed compliment, you know. It's 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 the 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 back door is like a uh, the truth or something. There's there's a um, but the the striking image of the rod sticking out of the top of the tomb. It's like is she attracted attracting electricity? Was that built into the design? I mean, there's so many unanswered questions. Was the rod the, placed there by Dracula's minions themselves yeah. to imprison her? It's so unclear. And it's like that lack of is, clarity that makes it evocative because we're talking I about we're talking think. about this and we're trying to fill in the blanks that were possibly not le- not left intentionally, but it's, it's Yeah, see I think that even these accidental blanks I know that it works really well when they're un- intentional, right? It can work really well when they're intentional. But I think even accidental error like this is not really uh, this, this is so curious about the story is is it's it wasn't you know Bram Stoker certainly could have had it published in his lifetime had wanted to um, the fact that it wasn't doesn't mean that he didn't want it published it just means that uh, you know there was certainly demand for more Dracula stuff right so what's the scoop on this I would say 
that whatever's going on in it is at, at least part accidental. And yet it's still very effective. Very, very effective. And, and it's the teasing of, of not knowing what's going on. You know, what, it's what makes it so cool. Uh, that's why, you know, Lovecraft is the master of this. He, he, he doesn't do it accidentally though. He does it on purpose. Not let, not allowing us to know what is ultimately behind something. Um, but just using filler words, you know, uh, it was a blank, right? And some, hard to pronounce monster and then you start filling it in and then other people you know come up with a fully ex- a fully explained you know rule book rpg manual telling you exactly august derelict style exactly what everything was uh, and it's some person's theory but actually um i was re- there was, I, I was rereading it. some of my lovecraft county books and i was feeling that they had come closer to Lovecraft's opinions than August Derleth. Imagine hmm. what would have happened if we lost everything that, that Lovecraft had written and only had August Derleth's commentaries about Lovecraft. Oh. I'm reading this, and I'm thinking about what do we really know about Socrates? All we know is what we, is what we hear exactly. from Plato and Xenophon. The, yeah, the, yeah. Their opinions of, of Socrates, their opinions of his stories. So I'm rereading so I'm rereading uh, one of my um, books of, Lovecra- of Lovecraftian collections, and it, there's a prep forward by August Derleth. And August Derleth is referring to these beings as a call, a, that Cthulhu is a water elemental, that so-and-so that is an mm-hmm. earth elemental. I'm thinking, that's his opinion. That's not what's... But he states it as fact, as opposed to... It, it, that, that's yeah. why he wound up creating good guy versions of all of these mm-hmm. beings to, you know. Which is totally uh, against the ethos that actually Lovecraft he didn't, there was no meaning to be, you know, derived from this. It was just, it was to create the atmosphere of of existential dread caused by a meaningless universe, right? Um, in this case, Dracula, Dracula's guest, um, it's in, it's in aid of something, which is, we assume, the regular Dracula book and the dr- regular Dracula plot. But because it's been disconnected, it feels um, like it could be the start of another uh, an, another entire novel that's totally unconnected, doesn't it? it? Is, God, it's such a good story. Just presented I on see. its own. It's like a. It's like a. It's like a delicious bonbon sitting on a silk pillow, mm-hmm. and it doesn't matter what it's connected to. It maybe it leads you to the story itself, yes, to Dracula, but it in its own. It is small and simple and easy to digest and evocative as heck, and it's just presented to you in the perfect vein. This is for me a perfect story to just pick up and read. At, at, I, I think that's exactly right. It, 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 and I actually prefer it to Dracula myself. Well, yeah. um, I mean, Dracula's great. It's just, you, there's a period where every so often where you think, is he just filling pages with words? Two well, fill pages with words? I mean, he's he's yeah. referring to it, but the the chase scene is, well, I used the term earlier, it's interminable. Interminable. It just sort of <laughs> yeah. drags on. And that, yeah, an editor might have been able to help this, but you know, yeah. 
Kesara, uh, the, 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 the story is what it is, and it's excellent for, for, for what it is. I feel the ending is a little, yeah, but I feel the same way about Talking about Dracula yeah, now, not yes, Dracula. Exa- yeah, right. Exactly. And particularly when you think of this as the, as the first portion, I think that Dracula should always be, if this not published with it at, inserted as this is definitely part of the story, this should always be, be published as part of the foreword and then straight mm-hmm. into Dracula, because this is just, oh, God, this is just a beautiful I want to read the Dracula that starts like this. That's actually the Dracula I want to read. And, you know, Dracula is a, it's an important book and stuff, but I, I really like this story. And I think it it has a evocative power. I mean, that's a word we keep using over and over that's again. It's a perfect word. That allows, it, it's the right word for it, isn't yes. it? Yes. It, it has a power that, is about the good writing. It's about the uh, inexplicable that is somewhat explained at the end, right? How, why are all these things happening? Aha, it's part of a greater plan. And then we have the legacy that follows from it. It's um, It almost feels like, you know, if you were releasing it today, right? If, if Dracula hadn't been written and Dracula's guest hadn't been written, you know, 100 years ago, you could release it today as this is the the free sample chapter, you know, of the book, and everybody would be like, wow, this is going to be the greatest book ever. Because it is so evocative. It makes you think of things to come. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.